From the world of AV programming and control with James King, I'm Steve Greenblatt, and this is Ask the Programmer. I'm excited to be back for another episode with you, James, and how are you today? Um, I'm doing well, Steve, and it's always good to be here on Ask the Programmer as we learn and evolve in programming. And uh, today, again, we're joined for another episode with Stephen Peacock from Texas State University. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for being with us. Afternoon. Thanks, Gifford. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. So in case you missed it, Stephen was with us in our past episode, episode 40, and uh, uh, you can get a little bit about his uh, background and listening to the show and uh, some of the uh, thoughts and takeaways that he's had. And one of the items that we discussed is the concept of of developing standards. And, and we, we touched a little bit on the last show about uh, code review and keeping consistency with regard to knowing how things are intended to be done with an, or, an, or, an organization. And when we talk about standards, it's always something that could be looked at from different sides. And some people have a little bit of uh, of, of a challenge with it because it, standards sometimes curb creativity. So, um, uh, Stephen, if you wouldn't mind, tell me a little bit about what's what's important to you and your organization about setting up standards and maybe give a couple of examples. Sure. We kind of break standards down on two different levels. Uh, our most important standard is going to be user experience that no matter how you touch or interact with the system, it doesn't matter who programmed it, you're going to be, there's some basic behaviors that'll be the same. You know, uh, when you touch a button, does it make a click? You know, when you press a volume button or if you hold a volume button, what happens? You know, that we kind of, we have a standard for those sorts of behaviors that we're trying to use uh, just so user experience is unified across everything. And then we've got a, standard code base as well that we use. Uh, it's a template file, covers roughly 32,000 permutations of room combinations, uh, wow. if you break it down. But, uh, you know, we're using that and, you know, so that way you're using the same, you know, it doesn't matter if a room has one microphone or four microphones, that's the same base program with a few things swapped in and out, helps guarantee stability and, and consistency. You know, do you have one display? Do you have two displays? No mics, things like that. So how did these standards come about or how, how did you get to this point? Is it something that was a necessity because of uh, uh, the, the end users, because of time, money, um, resources? Was there, was there anything that, well, what, what brought this on? Uh, yeah, we were looking at a standard code base just to save time. So we weren't reinventing the wheel. Um, yeah, it cost a little bit of time to develop a code base, but once it was there, it helped reduce our standard programming time. Uh, took a conventional room down from a few hours or half a day to like 35, 40 minutes. Uh, starting to get a payback by that. We're in an environment where we have a whole lot of rooms that are very similar where that can work. Uh, one of the unique aspects of higher education. And then user experience was 
out of necessity. We've always known we wanted it to be the same, or if you press a projector on button, you know, but there was a little, little difference between how some of our things were done just based on who programmed them and their, their expectation. So started doing some customer surveys, things like that to help build out a set of explanations of what we do and how we do it. That, that sounds wonderful. Um, James, can you weigh in? I know you have standards in the things that you have developed and kind of they kind of evolve over the over time and you either find that you need to make an adjustment to your your default functionality or you need to uh, uh, migrate some code to either new hardware. Uh, I know we've discussed some of these things in the past. What, what, are, what are some other value? What, what, what are some other things that you have found to be particularly valuable in, in approaching and, and developing standards? Um, probably the biggest value I would say is troubleshooting because you will eventually need to troubleshoot your code and knowing how your code's written and having that standard feel it's easier to debug and get down to the root of the program instead of going okay well this room i did this in and that room i did this in and oh i went over and did this function for that room you're all over the place and it's easier to get lost and trying to figure out where your bug is, especially if your bug is across all those rooms, but your code's all different. Now you got to try to make, fix your bug in three, four, five different code base instead of one. And that's a big argument that I say all the time is that a five minute change is, it takes five minutes if you're only doing it in one room, but when you have to do it in a hundred rooms, it becomes a big deal. So consolidating the, number of unique code bases that you have can really be a value when it comes to maintenance and, and modification, even more so, I think, than implementation. It's, uh, it, it depends on how much, of course, your, your systems change. But uh, with, with that said, Stephen, how do you go about adopting changes to your standards? Because that sounds like it could get tricky. Um. We've started taking a life cycle management approach. Uh, our product isn't necessarily the code that's in the field, but the experience. We have a couple of fixed generations um, and we'll use a fixed generation. You know, we're on generation four right now. That's our current production group. We've got R&D going on five, but four is still in production and we'll probably have that in production for the next year and a half. Um, we hit wow. maintenance windows, things like that probably, you know, in about a year and a half, we should have generation five, you know, selected, designed, researched, and tested. And once we can do the test, you know, get that produced and then go ahead and get that in the field, then we'll switch over to generation five. And that's what we do from that point forward. But rather than saying it's this room or that room, we look at the experience you're getting in the space and try to manage that. And then all of all of the systems are updated to the new generation. So I'm assuming you you're, you've really gotten everybody's buy-in. Uh, we've gotten the buy-in. We don't move all the uh, 
we can't move all the systems at once. Uh, we have, you know, roughly three generations in the field at a time. Oh, wow. Uh, so even though we try to standardize it, it just happens. You know, there's only so many rooms you can do and so many days to do them. Uh, we got a couple hundred spaces we deal with and we can't turn them that quickly. So, so you know, it, from it, monetary and budgetary, we, we can't do it. And then time constraints, we just don't have enough manpower to flip several hundred rooms at a time. So the, so I guess maybe I, um, uh, underestimated that is probably hardware that goes along with the, with, with those builds of, of new generations. Oh yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, we'll have separate software builds and evolutions inside. Um, inside a generation, there may be 4.1, 4.2, 4.3, and we'll go ahead and backfill with those uh, on the same hardware. But it's, yeah, we try to keep a continuous loop with our end users, uh, collecting, we collect bug reports and then also do some functional testing with end users and log feature requests that we get from folks. And then we'll, We'll sit down and say, oh, okay, let's add that to these rooms. Or we found a way to do it and push that out at a fixed pace. Uh, we got try to do a release a year, uh, barring anything major. Uh, major changes once a year. And if we do have something subtle, we need to do a little bit quicker than that. So what is the process to get a release approved? Do you have a lab where, where you bring in users? Uh, ideally, yes. We, yeah, we try to lab, try to lab it and bring folks in and get some real world buy-in and testing across the systems before they go out. Uh, try to do that wherever we can. Uh, there, there have been a few things we've gone ahead and just pushed to the field, but for the most part, yeah, we definitely try to come in and do a usability study with folks, actually use them, give some feedback based on system design and things like that. That's very exciting. It's that's really really encouraging to hear because not that that's not I I don't believe that that's the majority uh, that uh, are taking that type of an approach and that's probably something that a lot of people can learn from. Um, James, what what is um, what 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 are some things that you have done? I guess that are along those lines and and um, you know how how can you also is um, do, do you do you do like upgrades year after year to older systems as well as newer ones? Um, no, we don't go that route. Um, I mean, the interesting way of looking at it, and as I mentioned last episode, I always get these nuggets from our guests, and uh, so that does have a wheel in the back of my mind working of could I actually use something like this? Uh, but normally our code, once we roll out to the room, unless there's a bug in the code, we leave that code there. Um, unless it's hardware change or a bug change. Other than that, that code stays and lives in, in that room until we upgrade it. Hmm. Which is, I think that's probably most of the systems out there because a lot of people, especially when it comes to making changes, don't touch it if it's working. <laughs> so. Well, 
Yeah, my only obvious to that, a lot of people are, okay, it's working, we're not going to touch it, and that's it. Where, yes, I'm that way too. I, if it's working, I'm not touching it. But I'm also monitoring for upgrades. For example, um, even though this probably doesn't affect the uh, AV as much, that uh, Log4J vulnerability, like that's something I would patch and roll out and code if I was running a log 4j and um so any if I found like there was a security bug even if my system's working I'm gonna patch it I'm gonna update it I don't leave it to go oh well it's working and leave the front door open sure so with that said do you pick one room and make sure that that room is solid and then move on to other rooms I'm a big component for that. Like whenever I do anything, I do a lot of testing and I'll test in like my workbench and then roll out to one room. Once I'm pretty confident it's working in one room, then I deploy it wherever it needs to be deployed. Sure. Uh, Steven, before we wrap up, what, what are your thoughts with regard to how, do you, how managing firmware and, and other uh, aspects? Because when you're talking about standards, even though it's not something that you can control. I would imagine that you have a procedure that, uh, that, that, that you adhere to. Yeah. We, yeah, we usually do a release. Uh, we'll pull something down and lab it, uh, say, Hey, how is this interacting with our current, you know, with what we have in the field and try to run it in a closed lab environment and also evaluate the firmware as to, what are the release notes? Like James said, you know, if we're addressing something like log four, that's gonna, you know, that's gonna push out very quickly, you know, uh, especially if there's a security concern, if it's functionality or an expansion of compatibility for a later generation of equipment that we may not be using right now, uh, go ahead and hold that, you know, I've got some stuff we've held for several weeks, uh, that we're looking at doing next week uh, and pushing some firmware next week. So we can go ahead and roll firmware everywhere to try to keep environments consistent. That's very, very insightful. And uh, one last question uh, that, that, I, that just came to mind is when you're troubleshooting and you have the multiple generations in the field, is that, does that present a problem with the, and, and is there a, uh, it, it, you have to be careful to make sure that you're updating the right code and not jumping ahead of yourself. Oh yeah. We try to be pretty careful with that. We maintain repositories of every location. So having individual location backups is kind of nice. Uh, and we use some file control on that. So you can Everyone has read write or everyone has read access, but not necessarily write access. We do control to check those in and update if there's been a patch issued. Uh, but yeah, it it can be a little bit of a challenge. Have to think back. Hey, how did we do this ten years ago, or almost ten? I think we've still got a few that are, you know still have some VGA in them, things like that as the uh, back major back end. But also we found that really helpful so we can build sort of a support and troubleshooting guide for each generation 
So instead of having to do that for each room, they tweaked a little bit here, tweaked a little bit there. By maintaining that, we can just say, oh, even if I don't remember this space, I know it's a Gen 3. Here are our notes on Gen 3. Sure. That's great. Well, that, I think a lot of people can learn from you, and I think that you provided a lot of great insights. So hopefully uh, you're you're also getting the same in return from others. But And uh, thank you for being part of the conversation. And how could people find out more about what you're doing, reach out to you directly? Sure, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Stephen Peacock with Texas State University. And then my group is Learning Spaces. Uh, you can find us on the web if you search for Texas State University and search for learning spaces on that website. Wonderful. I'm sure that many will be because you had a lot of great things to offer. And thanks for being with us. Uh, James, uh, any closing thoughts? And uh, also, how can people find out what you're up to? Oh, as always, it's great getting these uh, knowledge from our guests here. And uh, this was a good one with Steve. I agree with uh, Stephen here. There's a lot of people are probably going to be hitting you up, uh, Steve, on uh, LinkedIn and stuff, because that's great information you provided over the last two episodes. Um, as always, I'm on Twitter, AV underscore James King. On LinkedIn, I do write the IT and AV uh, column for the Higher Ed Digital Magazine. And again, just search me on the internet. I'm sure you're going to find me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. For me, you can reach me at Steve Greenblatt on social media. I do some writing for AV Network, uh, maybe Technology Magazine, and my company blog at controlconcepts.net. And we're also uh, a part of A State of Control, which is an AV Nation podcast. You could check that out as well. I'm sure that this audience would appreciate it. But what's important to James and me is that we hear from more of you and I want to have some more guests on the show and want to have this conversation uh, become more broad and have more insight like Stephen was able to provide for us today. So please join us by either reaching out to us directly, leave a comment, um, check us out on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. And um, we want to we want to make sure that we're not only um, making this a valuable content, but we're also featuring those of you who want to be a part of the conversation. So uh, please reach out. And that's all we have for today on Ask the Programmer.